thanks for joining us. Uh, I'll pray in a minute and then uh, the format uh, of, of this evening will be, uh, I'm going to go through quite a lot of material because this is quite complicated I think, so it might be me talking for about 45 minutes and then we'll take half an hour of uh, conversation uh, in groups as well to, to talk this over. So I, I, hope it's, uh, I hope it's constructive. But uh, shall we pray? Uh, o loving God, uh, we come before you now uh, as people who love you and who love your words and who long to be uh, thoughtful disciples and people who thoughtfully live by your words. But we confess that there are some aspects uh, of Scripture that we struggle with, including uh, some of the passages that we'll look at this evening. And uh, I pray that you'd inform us and uh, guide us and uh, help us to learn from one another. And uh, just that this would be uh, fruitful this evening and to your glory. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I hope this is going to prove to be uh, a helpful evening. I started to do a bit of thinking about this a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I was reflecting on how I haven't really looked at Joshua in depth. I mean, I've read it a couple of times in sort of morning devotions, but I've, I've not preached on it or really studied it. Uh, since 2008, that was the last time I did a sermon series on Joshua, and uh, I find myself far more troubled this time around than I was in the past, and I find myself thinking, why is this? Is this stuff that has changed within me, or is this stuff that has changed uh, within all of us? Uh, is a reflection of how our churches more generally approach things in different ways? I find myself thinking back as well to uh, the 1990s, which was uh, the decade of evangelism. Does anyone remember that? And uh, we used to sing songs about walking the land with hearts on fire. And we would take, we would take territory. Every step would be uh, a prayer. And uh, we would enter the land because the battle belonged uh, to the Lord. And uh, we sang as well about wanting to see Jesus lifted high because every step we were moving forward and little by little we were taking ground. Do anyone else remember this? We probably, yeah, I don't know, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, sorry, yeah, yeah. But that, that whole idea, I think, of taking territory for Jesus was quite a big thing. Uh, and I wonder if we looked to Joshua or we were drawn to Joshua or, or just looked at it through that sort of paradigm. But we probably now have uh, a different view of evangelism and what it looks like actually to, to proclaim Jesus or to speak of God to, to other people. So I wonder whether we are more inclined now to think in terms of acts of service and kindness uh, rather than overcoming or prevailing. And so I wonder, and it might be one of the things we get to near the end of this evening, what do we do not just with language around uh, violence and scenes of violence, but what do we do with the Bible's talk about overcoming and, and conquering and so on? We can, we can see how we go. 
Uh, and I'd imagine I'm not the only person who, who takes this, this view. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll see how we get on. Now, as I was researching for this evening, I came across these words, which were written in 2006 by Richard Dawkins. Anyone remember this? The gold delusion, which made a bit of a stir when it came out. And uh, near the beginning of the book, Dawkins says this, that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, pseudo-masochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I, th I think he managed to make his point uh, or, or pack it in. Now, um, there are some people who would say that uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's almost classic Dawkins, that is peak, peak Dawkins, uh, that he manages to quote uh, or fit into those couple of sentences. Uh, and that actually it's a really good example of what Richard Dawkins does in The God Delusion. Uh, and that um, he constructs what is sometimes called a straw man argument. So he takes the most extreme texts in scripture and, and he tries to make them out to be typical of the whole thing uh, and makes that the, the basis of his, his demolition job or what he thinks is a demolition job. Um, I, I don't think Dawkins is as scary a critic of Christianity as people make him out to be. I remember reading the God delusion and thinking, this is not, this is not an overwhelming uh, critique. Um, but, but he does speak for a lot of people when he says this. And he does sum up a view many people would have on the Bible. Uh, and if you want to have that view of the Bible and you want to construct that view of God, Joshua gives you quite a lot of ammunition. So we'll try and tackle the subject, and uh, I admit that we do so with some uh, trepidation. It feels a little bit like trying to square the circle. You know that phrase. There, there are some things where you're trying to find uh, a, a way of working this through, and actually I'm not sure if you can completely. Part of this might just have to be accepting even at the end, it's still there, uh, and it's still troubling. But uh, I just want to suggest this evening three, three ways of coming at this, which um, I hope might be helpful to us uh, in terms of making sense, first of all, of Joshua, which we'll look at, and then scripture and violence uh, as a whole. So I just want to talk for a little bit, first of all, about uh, what I suggest is the importance of approaching these texts as thoughtful interpreters and, and approaching any text in the Bible. Now, as some of you will know, uh, one of the things I, I'm interested in in my spare time is, is history. And uh, I like reading history. Uh, and I like listening to podcasts on history, uh, including a regular podcast that comes out a couple of times a week called The Rest is History. Uh, I know that there are other fans uh, in the room. So this is one of my regular listens. Uh, and when I go out running, I listen to uh, these historians talking about uh, a whole sweep of topics, uh, the American Civil War, uh, the Battle of Trafalgar, Caesar crossing the Rubicon, and so on. But on many occasions, I mean, it comes up so frequently 
What is striking is that no matter what figure is discussed, a similar question keeps being raised uh, from, uh, about these people of other times. Would they be cancelled today? Uh, because in other words, there will be a conversation about some historic character, some aspect of the track record, some stance they had, and the question is raised of whether or not they could get away with being who they were in today's climate. And what is striking is that invariably the two hosts tend to answer the question in the same way, which is to point out the problem of trying to judge people in the past by contemporary standards. Uh, and it seems to me this applies to uh, historic figures in many um, ways, not just in the area of violence. So interestingly, over the last year, another writer I've discovered is uh, Dan Jones, don't know if anybody's heard of him, really thoughtful writer, has done lots of brilliant books uh, on the Middle Ages in Britain and Europe, and they are excellent, but they are horrendous when you read them, because so much of what you find being covered, uh, you realize just how incredibly violent other times in history have been, and, and actually most periods of history have been in comparison to our time. And that seems to me a very relevant point to make as we come to Joshua, which is written so long ago and which is telling us about events that took place in 1400 BC. So we are talking three and a half thousand years ago. So there's something here about remembering that yes, the Bible is inspired by God and it is God-breathed, but it is a very human document. And so it tells a story of people who God is blessing and who God is working with, and he works with them in the moments of history to which they belong. And you can't blame people for being people of their time. So in 1400 BC, people did not resolve their land disputes by sitting down and talking things over. Diplomacy was not a thing. You didn't have a cup of tea and try and work things out. It simply wasn't done. Uh, and so horrible as it is to admit it, the people who lived in Joshua's time or other biblical times probably didn't have a problem with this violence in the way that we do. It was just part of how the world worked. And at every moment in history, people will behave in ways that seem troubling to succeeding generations. And it will be so for us. In a hundred years' time or so, people might look back at us and be appalled at the things we did. How could they have eaten so much meat when they knew that it was causing damage to the planet? How could they have been flying around in aeroplanes just for the convenience of their travel or their business and so on? To which we would say it was just how the world was working at, at, at our time. So there's something about bearing this in mind uh, that not only do books like Joshua reflect the behavior and outlooks of people who lived at this time in history, they are texts as well that are typical of other religious writing from this period, uh, which is what academics call the ancient Near East. 
And as I was preparing for tonight, I came across a very helpful quote on this issue from Helen Painter, who is a lecturer at Bristol Baptist College. Helen was in my pastoral group at college, uh, and she just finished a career as a kidney consultant and trained for ministry, uh, and has gone on to become a fantastic Old Testament scholar, and she lectures now in Bristol. But uh, Helen says this, all of the ancient Near Eastern nations had their foundational myths, and many of them left records of their military conquests and their laws. It's unfair to read the biblical stories of Bronze Age and Iron Age societies in comparison with the relatively enlightened ethics of today. Uh, Because Dawkins does this, he demonstrates the progression of morality rather than in comparison with the text they are contemporaneous with. So in other words, you've got to compare them with the other myths uh, and and violent texts written around this time. So I think it's very helpful to point this out. Uh, And then just to reflect briefly on a couple of other points which have been made by people who who look at the violence within Joshua. And and just just to bear this in mind as well, as we we try to thoughtfully interpret uh, the passages. I think because these are passages which are written of their time, you also find in them uh, a tendency to exaggerate the levels of violence which were reported. So it's been suggested by people who look back on this that the numbers of people killed are sometimes exaggerated and that there are some occasions when what is spoken of is total destruction when that probably wasn't the reality. So interestingly, when you read on after Joshua, you get to Judges, and you get to other later books, which tells us that Israel is really struggling with the issue of idolatry and intermingling with these other nations, which seems to indicate that they weren't all killed in the way that Joshua is telling us happened. Really interesting. I was preparing this session, and then in my morning Bible readings, Psalm 106 came up, And I was really struck by these verses. And this is one of these really long, like you know in the Psalms, you get some of the Psalms which are big, sweep of Israel's history. And this is what they say. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. So there's a later part of the Old Testament kind of complaining that Israel didn't do the things that they were said to have done in Joshua. Really interesting. And that also actually, that problem of, well, they didn't do this thing, so now there are other nations and they're intermingling with them, also provides a little bit of context, I think, and a bit of explanation for why this, this violence was seen as being necessary. Um, that, that actually Israel is at a foundational moment uh, in its history. It's forming its identity and it really is a threat. So it, it, it feels this problem. If, if we do not get rid of the people around us, we are going to be at risk. And then the other thing, interestingly, with exaggeration is, you know, I think that's another feature you find in some Old Testament texts, that we are used to reading numbers and thinking of numbers in a very precise way. But in those more Old Testament times, those ancients probably thought more of you use a big number to express something dramatic and big, and you use a smaller number to express something less dramatic. But the actual precision with the figures wasn't so much of a thing. So we're told that Moses died when he was 120 years old, 
we are told that Joshua died when he was 110, are those figures an exact representation of their age? Or are they more just a way of saying they lived till they were really old and that meant they were blessed by God? And you use a really big number to, to make your point. So there's something about that. There's something about this idea of Joshua being written at a key foundational moment in Israel's history. And all nations and all groups of people tend to develop stories about foundational times. So this is really key. This is telling a story in such a way. If you go into any bookshop in the UK and you go into the history section, you will often find that there are as many books for sale on World War II as there are on all of the rest of every period of British history combined. Because we are obsessed with World War II. Because World War II is what people have called the foundation myth or the foundation story of modern Britain. Joshua is one of the foundation stories of Israel. Hi God, give us the land. And they tell the story in a particular way. And then thirdly, uh, there is the theory that what we, we read of in Joshua could be interpreted as acts of human violence and judgment, which are then interpreted and spoken sort of after the fact as God having acted. It's an interesting thing to, to think about. So one of the most thoughtful writers on this whole subject uh, is uh, an American academic called Gil Bailey. And uh, it was about um, 25 years ago, he wrote a fascinating book called Violence Unveiled. And, and he applies this idea of human violence being then credited to God as, as, uh, as one way of explaining a lot of what happened in Joshua. Uh, so his theory of Achan's story is a, is a good demonstration of that. And he would basically say, look, it is highly unlikely that when Israel went into Jericho, only one person plundered land. It, it just does not seem plausible. The more likely scenario is that lots of people, lots of people would have gone in and wanted to help themselves. But if you are going to punish all of the people who took stuff from Jericho, well, that is not a very viable option. You're going to decimate your army. And if you decimate your army when you're just trying to conquer a land, well, you know, you can, you can see the problem. And so in these circumstances, he says, to draw lots is a clever way of designating uh, a lawbreaker and then punishing them. So Achan is singled out in this way and then stoned to death. And this is what Gil Bailey uh, says about Achan's story. Vox populi, vox dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. And the one selected by lots is killed by what seems to have been a combination of spontaneous mob violence and an orchestrated and ritualized execution. This is what communities do. This is what communities do from time immemorial. They pick out people and they punish individuals for acts of collective failure. As I said before, look at France after the war where there had been collaboration on a huge scale. And some people got away with it, but women who had slept with German soldiers were hounded through the streets and tarred and feathered, scapegoating again. It's the sort of thing that communities do. 
And so is it plausible to suggest, I think it might be, you have some acts of human violence, but you can't tell the story as being human violence. So they're explained in this different way. And I'm not trying to question when I say this, the inspiration of scripture. I'm, I'm just trying to ask us to be honest and real about the humanity uh, of these uh, stories uh, as well. And it's so in lots of ways. Uh, you've got lots of people in scripture who are flawed, whether it's Jacob in his deviousness, Saul in his jealousy, uh, David in his sexual morality. There's lots just of fallen people uh, and God is working through them. And I just wonder in this first point, it takes me to just a final thing which uh, I, I'd offer as a suggestion. Uh, and you might want to chew this over as well. I, I, I sometimes wonder if part of the problem we have when we look at these stories is that we've been trained or taught to think that there must be a moral lesson or something for me to do differently in every passage that I read in the Bible. And I'm just not always sure that that's the case. Sometimes the lesson might just be, it's a real mess and it involves troubling people, but God is faithful and God works through them. You know, I've heard lots of sermons preached over the years so by David and Bathsheba, and the lesson is ladies shouldn't have a bath and a roof and men shouldn't look at them. Well, you know, really, or isn't there more possibly going on? Maybe we just say it's, it's a terrible, horrible episode but still God manages to, to, to work through it. You know, and if we really try and find complete resolution of these issues, we, 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 may not, we may not ever get to them. So that's just one idea, uh, one thing you might want to think about, just, just trying to come at this from a slightly more, more thoughtful view of these passages. Uh, and then I'll talk, not for quite as long, about two other attempts to try and make sense of these passages. So the second one is, um, what I want to talk about is, is just God's love for us and his willingness to, to enter into our sin uh, and our brokenness. Uh, and, and so actually, what I want us to do here is maybe try and step back and think now about the whole breadth of the biblical story of creation and fall and redemption. So Genesis 1 to 2, great, great stuff, fantastic. Images of a world lovingly fashioned, created by God, and it's good. But of course, it's not long before we have the fall of Genesis, uh, and we have the rebellion of Adam and Eve, and we have the warnings to them about uh, the consequences of their action. So do you remember what they're told? Your work will be a toil. Relations between men and women will be altered, and so forth. And you go straight from... Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, and you get the story of Cain and Abel. And uh, Cain's sacrifice is rejected in a way that Abel's is accepted. We're not told why, but Cain is warned, isn't he? You've got to be careful. You know, violence could be crouching at your door. If you do not deal well with this disappointment, you don't know what you could be letting loose. And of course, he goes straight out and he murders Abel. So, so almost immediately after the fall, 
We, we, we have the first introduction of violence in the Bible, this, this terrible story. And you find, I mean, the, the early chapters of Genesis are terrible. There is this very rapid decline. So you get to chapter six and God is so appalled at the spiraling of violence and human conduct that he is in despair at the conduct of humanity. Genesis six, we read, verse five, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at the time. And uh, you go on to read in verse six that God actually uh, regrets his decision ever to make humans. Terrible, terrible moment. And so he resolves to wipe out humanity, to start again, but, but then we read of him deciding to preserve Noah who finds favor in his eyes and he's gonna preserve him through the horror of the flood, use his family as the basis of beginning again. And, and then you get to this further reflection of how dire the situation has become in, in verse 11 when we read this. And this seems, this seems particularly telling, I think, in light of tonight. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth have corrupted their ways. And John Goldengate, who is a, a, a brilliant Old Testament scholar, says something really interesting about, about these verses, that the word you get there for violence or, or violation has a sort of double connotation. So it has the idea of people doing violence to God's rules and doing violence to one another, and it hints at a link between these two, that violating God's rules leads to violence between people and or that violence toward other people involves violation of God's rules for human life. And so one way or another, things are ruined. So you push back against God, you push back against people. You have a pointing forward of how love for God and love for neighbor are going to have to be tied up in, in one message in the future. So it brings us back again to that point that we looked at earlier, the idea that the fall isn't just a breakdown in relationship with God, it's a relationship with each other, it's, it's, it's uh, our relationship with the world. I mean, we know even that violence is, is not just something humans do to each other, that where there is conflict, animals suffer as well. You know, we talk about the earth being scorched. I remember reading quite moving stories of how British soldiers moving through Normandy not long after D-Day, some of them who were farmers would come across cows in the field who were just in agony because they hadn't been milked for weeks. And they will stop, you know, and, 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 and just tend to them because animals suffer. Everyone suffers when there is war. And into this world, in its brokenness, in its suffering, God comes. And first of all, he chooses a people for himself who will be uh, a kingdom of priests, uh, and from whom he will eventually bring an anointed figure, a Messiah, who will be a fulfiller of his saving purposes. Uh, and, and this gets us into the complex subject of how God chooses to respond to the world's rebellion and to the love he shows, because he, he shows this love in the Old Testament, primarily worked out in his relationship with Israel. And so he calls this people and he loves them in spite of the fact that they are really unfaithful to him. And quite a lot of the time they go uh, after other gods. And one of the ways he chooses to work with them 
because they're people of a particular time and place and a very violent place, uh, is, is to kind of work, work with them in their rebellion. He doesn't uh, impose himself, it seems, on people. He works with people as they are. Uh, and then there are some theologians who will call this the idea of accommodation, that time and again we see moments in the Old Testament when God seems to be letting people have their way. He allows people to reject his advice. He allows people, Israel for example, to have a king. In, the, you know, in spite of the fact that he says, do not do this. He says to them through Samuel, do not do this. And so all of the way you see this pattern. God is being faithful to his people and he's working with them in spite of their mess and in spite of their flaws. This God of love, this God of perfection, this God of holiness somehow allows himself to be bound up in the mess of his people. Now just think about that as a, as a pattern and a picture and listen to what John Golden Gay says uh, in another book. That all of the way through the First Testament, that's what he calls the Old Testament, all of the way through the First Testament, God had been letting humanity do its worst and he had especially been letting the people he adopted do its worst and he'd been refusing to be overcome by its rejection and rebellion declining to abandon it or destroy it. God had been paying the price, in journeying with Israel, God had been paying the price for his people's attitude to sin. He'd been sacrificing himself for his people, bearing its sin. He had been absorbing the force of that sin, carrying it in himself, rather than making Israel carry it. So Golden Gate makes his point. This is who the God of the Old Testament is. And then he goes on to say that in this light, if you think about the Old Testament in that way, Calvary, the cross, can be viewed as the logical and inevitable culmination of acting and letting himself be acted upon. So God has always been in the way of working with people in their sinfulness and absorbing that sinfulness. If God is going to enter into our world uh, in love and choose people and call them into relationship, and seek to export, uh, support them, but experience their hurt and their rejection, there was always the possibility that one day the violence would turn back on him and uh, it would be a violence which was not just a violation of what he asks of people, but an actual violation of him. When in his physical person he, he arrives in the form of Jesus. And it seems very telling that uh, this violence comes in the form of crucifixion. I mean, the most terrible, dreadful form of execution probably ever conceived and at the hands of the Roman Empire. I mean, crucifixion was unspeakably cruel. It, it was a means by which you, you just, you maximized the suffering and the degradation of the person being killed. And so Greg Boyd, uh, another theologian who has written very, very, fine insights and books on this subject, he offers this uh, insight on what happened, that insofar as the cross involved God allowing wicked agents and the sin of the world to act toward him, it is grotesque. It manifests the ugliness of sin and the horror of God's judgment on sin. And so God thus revealed the unsurpassable beauty of the perfect love of his eternal nature to us 
through the ugliness of this sin and condemnation that he self-sacrificially allowed to act toward him. That's quite a profound thought, that the most terrible way that people have conceived of killing other people somehow comes to be understood as a revelation of the love of God, that God puts himself through that to demonstrate how he cares for the world. Um, I mean, it's one of the things I think we still struggle to get our heads around. Tom Holland, uh, he's one of the presenters of the Rest is History podcast. Um, I remember hearing him speak one evening and he commented on how in Roman times the idea that a human being became a god was not unusual. There were lots of stories of emperors or rich people say, and when they died, oh, people see their soul go up to heaven and now they're in the clouds and they're looking down on us and they become a powerful figure. The idea that someone who had been crucified and suffered the most appalling degradation was actually worthy of worship was unthinkable. It's a really interesting bit of graffiti that was found in Rome several decades ago. They reckon this comes around the second or third century. I think we can put it up my mark. It's called the Aleximenos Graffito. And it's uh, a Christian with his hands in worship to uh, a donkey on a cross. And uh, the, the slogan beneath it, it's about this Christian called Aleximenos. And the caption is, Aleximenos worships his God. Ha. That's what the Christians do. They worship someone on a cross. But uh, we see it differently. Remember what Paul says. On the cross, Jesus was actually disarming the powers and authorities. Jesus allowed all of this terrible violence to be poured upon him, and then he rises again. Greg Boyd um, writes uh, later in that same book of high, when Jesus was crucified, all sin was nailed to the cross with him, which includes all fallen conceptions of God as a violent warrior. That's a powerful image as well. So all the time God might have allowed himself to be seen as this warrior. Now on the cross when he becomes the victim, no more can he be seen in that way. It's a very profound mystery. Uh, isn't it? Time's almost gone. I'm just going to talk for um, a few more minutes and I want to offer one final perspective. So there's something about trying to be thoughtful interpreters. There's something about uh, just this idea of God in his love entering our world and uh, allowing himself to be caught up in violence but redeeming it. And then I just want to offer a final suggestion. Old Testament violence and New Testament non-violence. And is it that straightforward? So bear with me. I just think it's important to talk about this briefly because it seems to me as well that often we approach this subject from the, the perspective of, well, the Old Testament is terrible and it's violent and it's all about war and the New Testament is all about peace, love and understanding. But I wonder whether it's a bit more complex than that. So I've mentioned Greg Boyd uh, earlier, who I've found a brilliant writer on, on lots of subjects, uh, but particularly the subject of, of scripture and violence. Uh, and amongst, amongst his many books was one that he published years ago. It's called God at 
God at War, The Bible and Spiritual Conflict. It's brilliant. If you're going to read any book on this subject, I would recommend this. But, but Greg Boyd basically writes and makes the argument that you can actually read all of Scripture through what he calls a sort of warfare worldview. And that, in other words, the primary perspective of the biblical writers, be it the Old Testament or the New Testament, was that they were living in a world where there was ongoing conflict between the purposes of God and the forces in the world which were rebelling against God and which were in rebellion against him and which bring chaos and disorder and evil into the world. And so he says, you see this in a number of ways in the Old Testament that even the moment of creation itself can be seen as an attempt to bring order to chaos and to bring sort of shape and substance to what is formless and void. But that battle, when you read the Old Testament, doesn't seem to be fully resolved in the moment of creation. So you read further on and, and you have this, these pictures of, of continuing disorder which is yet to be tamed. So you read a book like Job and you find God battling with Leviathan, you know, with a sea creature. It seems to speak of God not yet fully having brought all of his order to the world. Uh, there is also, of course, the sense of humanity which is in rebellion against God. But that is understood as being part of a sort of deeper cosmic rebellion. Isaiah 14, Satan is thrown out of heaven uh, because he has tried to assume a power equal to God. And Jesus, of course, speaks of that himself later in the Gospels. Luke 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning, he says, from heaven. And then there is a sense in the Old Testament in which this pattern of warfare and conflict is kind of lived out at a ground level in conflict between Israel and other nations. And so if you go back to Deuteronomy, uh, where the ban or, or, or the sort of judgment of violence is spoken about against other nations, it is spoken of as a sort of judgment on their sin. So um, Israel's fortune in war is linked to their faithfulness to God, and, and there is a sense in which they are fighting for him. Now then we go into the New Testament, and of course there is a fundamental massive change on what we spoke about earlier. So you go from the warrior God to the God who is revealed in Jesus, who is a victim of violence and who lays down his life. And that is the means by which God's glory is revealed. And yet, there's still a very strong sense in which the ministry of Jesus is characterized by confrontation. You see this in terms of how he speaks even of his, his mission. Mark 3, he says, My mission is like breaking into a strong man's house and plundering it. Uh, in Matthew 10, he sends out his disciples, and he does it in Luke 10, and he says, you are going to face rejection. He even says in Matthew 10, I haven't come to bring peace to the earth but a sword. There are going to be divided opinions where my gospel is proclaimed, uh, people may turn against each other in, in response to me. Even families may be divided. And then you go on in the Gospels and you see that there are miracles. There are scenes when, for example, uh, he casts out demons and there is a, 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 a visceral response from the demonic realm. It's a Mark 4, remember, Gerasene demoniac. And he sees Jesus coming to him and he shouts at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of God? It's almost as if in the Gospels, the demonic realm is all, I mean, it's one of the first to recognize, whoa, 
this, this man is coming after us now, and, and we are threatened. And when he talks of his church, he says the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He seems to envisage an ongoing struggle. Uh, and of course, this struggle is fought in different ways and in peaceable ways, but still there is a spiritual battle to be fought. And that sense of being in a battle is evident in Paul's letters as well. Remember he says in Ephesians 6, he talks about the armor of God, and he says uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the powers of the dark world. So there is a struggle. And it's not the only example you get of Paul speaking uh, in those terms. He talks, 2 Corinthians 10, uh, about a, a battle for ideas, and he says it's like demolishing arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. He tells Timothy to act like a soldier. And then, of course, all of that is worked out most fully in the final book of the Bible, which is Revelation. And so that is one of the things, I th I, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this, because we might think of the Old Testament as being about war and the New Testament more peaceful, but actually the New Testament ends with some of the most grim and horrendous depictions of, of violence uh, again. So remember, you get to chapter 19, uh, which tells of the, the heavenly warrior and he defeats the beast. Uh, and of course, he is clearly depicted as Jesus. And he, um, we, we, we're told that he has the words, King of kings and Lord of lords and his robe and thighs, like a tattoo almost. Uh, we're told that when he goes into battle, he is dressed in a robe dipped in his blood. So there is still something kind of non-violent. It's because he has suffered and because he has been a victim that he can win, but you can't escape the violence that follows. So he's described as defeating the beast and the kings of the earth and throwing them into the fiery lake, and that scene is followed by the judgment of Satan, who's thrown into a lake of burning sulfur. So it's about as gruesome and violent as it gets. Why do we find these passages near the end? Why does the story end this way? And I just wonder if one way of understanding this is that ultimately, if God is going to bring in a new world of peace and order, if God is going to bring in a world where there is no crying or mourning or pain, if the old order has passed away, if God is going to answer the saints who all through Revelation are crying out how long, ultimately he has to defeat the powers of evil and the powers of evil will not go quietly. So uh, a final quote as uh, this comes to an end from Miroslav Volf, uh, who's a, a very helpful writer on this issue. He sums up the dilemma very well. The violence of the rider in Revelation is the righteous judgment of the one called faithful and true. And without such judgment, there can be no world of peace, truth, and justice. Terror, or the beast that devours, and propaganda, the false prophet that deceives, must be overcome. Evil must be separated from good and the darkness from the light. These are the causes of violence. They must be removed if a world of peace is to be established. So it's hard, but I, I find myself looking at this and I think, 
you know, we, we may aspire to have a kind of non-violent, non-warfare reading of Scripture, but I'm not actually sure if that's possible simply because the world has rebelled and if God is ever to bring us to the point where there's no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain because the old order has passed away, that old order must be put to one side. But in putting it to one side, God will eventually bring to birth something newer and more beautiful that we wait for on this side. So sorry, I've talked enough. I just thought it might be helpful to talk about this and choose some of the stuff. I don't know what we make of this because it's hard stuff to talk about. It's not, it's not easy stuff to think about. But uh, I thought we could just have sort of 15 minutes or so to talk over this and uh, take any questions, any feedback. Uh, just put this down. What do we, I mean, just how do we respond to this? Um, is there anything you want to add? Is there anything you disagree with? Uh, anything you want to take away? Uh, and I just wonder, is there anything, is there anything we can learn from these reasons or other things? How do we talk to seekers about parts of the Bible they find offensive? I mean, that, that warfare paradigm, uh, I mean, how does that speak to a world where Vladimir Putin is running uh, a terrible course in Ukraine and people are suffering, you know, where we just see so much disordered. Is, is there anything in what we've spoken of that could be good news for people? I don't know, we might want to talk about that. But yeah, should we take 15 minutes to talk about this and then get back into, yeah, get into some groups and then a little bit of conversation at the end?